Yes, guys, what's happening? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. And for those of you watching on YouTube, you'll be able to see that. As always, I'm joined by co-host George. Mate, great to have you on board. And we are delighted to be joined this week by sports broadcaster and presenter Sam Matterface. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Obviously, for those watching on YouTube, we are to see you're joining us with a nice backdrop from the pub, which is which is always great. Um, <laughs> welcome to the, the show. Thanks for coming on. Um, we like to kick off the podcast by asking the guests about the team that they support and kind of how they got involved with following them. So, yeah, you wouldn't mind saying kind of the team you support and obviously how you got involved with following the club? Well, it's very different now to what it was like when I was a kid. Um, I know it's going to be difficult for you to believe, but I'm in my 40s now. Yeah, and I don't leave the compliments. Um, but ultimately, when I was a kid, um, I was obviously a massive football fan, fell in love with it in the late 80s, early 90s, and um, followed it closely, religiously, like you know every other football fan. Once I became in the profession and was working on a regular basis, it's slightly different because you get to know everybody. You mix with people that are involved in the game. You don't work at one club. You work at several. I worked at Portsmouth for seven years, got very close to that club. Um, and then subsequently, I've worked all over the country, obviously followed England quite closely over the last couple of years. So, you know, I've become very sort of close to people there. I work a lot with Manchester United and Manchester City now because of where I am. And I do a lot of Liverpool and Everton because I live in the north. But when I was a kid, I was a Chelsea fan. I was uh, brought up as a Chelsea fan. My dad's from Battersea. My mum is from Battersea. They, my mum lived opposite Clapham Junction Station. My dad lived uh, in Henning Road, um, which um, is a lot nicer now than it was when I first started going there in the... Uh, in the early 80s, my first memories of it. So Southwest London was where my family were from. So they were all big Chelsea fans. And still to this day, my uncle, my cousins, my brother, my sister, when I, mainly my sister, uh, are all Chelsea fans. So, you know, Chelsea was the, the club that I supported as a kid. And it's, uh, you know, it's still the club I, I would say, if anyone says, who do you, you support? I support Chelsea. But... I, I, I'm not going to claim for any minute that I, uh, I, I go to as many games as a supporter as, as I used to. I am very much, I'm a working football fan now, so I go to a lot of games. I probably do over 120 games a year. So I don't get much chance to be that, that supporter that went to Chelsea 3, Liverpool 3 in April 19, or May 1987. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you said you go to a lot of games. I mean, we've seen, you've, you know, we've watched you commentate on, on a lot of England games. Can't not have you on and just ask briefly about how you feel that Gareth Southgate and England might do at the World Cup coming up later this year. Do you think do you think the boys have got a good chance? Obviously, World Cup semi-finals, disappointing loss in the Euro in the Euros final at Wembley. Do you think we've got the capabilities to go one step further this time? Um, I think they've got every chance of competing again. But the one thing that worries me a little bit, and it does concern me, is that they have got to a semi-final of a World Cup. They've got to the final of the Euro, uh, European Championships. And I can't recall too many times when a team has done that well, that consistently, and continued the sequence. So I think it, it, it's going to be difficult. And I wouldn't be too surprised if, if, if they had a little bump in the road in Qatar in 2022. But at the same time, I wouldn't be too surprised if they went on and won it. It's one of those, it's one of those sliding doors moments. I think. Uh, I think Gareth gets an unfair press 
that's the world we live in now. Everybody wants to attack everybody. We know that from social media. That's the way it is. You're either for him or you're against him. And ultimately, I think, you know, I look back to what it was like working with England, doing England regularly under Roy Hodgson. It wasn't it wasn't much fun. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, and it was much more fun. Follow, it has been much more fun following uh, Gareth now so it is a it's a different it's a different beast it's it's a lot more open there's a lot more integration there's a lot more discussion there's a lot more um there's a lot better football sometimes it's a little bit conservative but i actually think that international football as a whole is quite conservative it's win or bust everything is a tournament it's not like a league season where you can afford to maybe be a little bit more cavalier it's actually it's tournament football all the time i hope they do well i'll be there i'm looking forward to all my games that i've got been penciled in for so far uh, our England game, so I'm, I'm excited about it. You're involved in sports commentating and stuff. It's obviously that's quite niche to sort of as a as a thing to get involved in. How how do you go about getting involved in that? How do you get discovered to become like a sports commentator? Because I suppose it's a little bit different to broadcasting in general itself. Um, how does that come about? And do you have like kind of tryouts for it? I mean, how how does that sort of process take place? Uh, how do you do it? Um, well, you have to be one of the saddest kids in the school. Um, <laughs> you're going back to sort of like, I mean, I started 1992. I was 14 and I uh, went to work at a hospital radio station. But it really started probably before that, you know, in the back of a car, listening to Alan Green and Mike King and Brian Butler on, on Radio 2, as it was then, then Radio 5. And I remember very vividly wanting to be on the radio and to do that thing where the ball's going towards the goal and the crowd is surging behind you and being able to talk about it. I wanted to write about it. I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to be involved in it. I wasn't very good. That's the truth. I wasn't very good at all. I was one of the people that you would... I ended up being a captain of uh, a Sunday league team for a while. And that was because I was the one who would work the hardest, really, mainly. But natural talent um, slipped past me unfortunately so I had to do something else and the best thing I've ever done was get involved in this which is broadcasting about football and I did it in 1992 I started at a hospital radio station and I just badgered knocked on doors for 10 years until someone gave me a job doing it I had my first job in my first paid job I don't think was until 1999 2000 something like that I think I was 22 when I first got my first paycheck from doing it I volunteered I did loads of stuff for free. I learned about different aspects of broadcasting. So I presented programs. I learned how to drive desks, to edit things, to put things together. I was, I did loads of varieties of different stuff. I just mucked in. I would do anything that anybody asked me to do in order to get through the door. I would pile the records that we used to have, the CDs, whatever, make a library. I would just go down and sit in that hospital radio station for hours on my own and practice and practice and practice. So I became... I had a load of experience by the time I went out into the freelance market when everybody else was finishing university. I had loads of experience. So that was it. I just, again, kept going from there. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, obviously, you know, you've commentated on some big games, England games, etc. like that. Do you mean how much preparation goes into commentating? Because, you know, obviously you see, you know, the commentators doing, doing their stuff. I mean, you've got like kind of lists of stats and, you know, obviously you've got the team sheets and stuff. How... Obviously, it's not scripted because it's very much reactionary to what's happening. But how much kind of prompting do you get in your ear from producers or broadcasters or anything like that whilst you're commentating on a live game? Or is it very much kind of down to you? But look, the whole show on TV is a collaborative effort. It's a producer's show and the show's put together by a team of people that um, do a hell of a lot of work. 
Um, the whole uh, the commentary stuff really is down to the information that I've been given from stats guys and producers beforehand and then how I deliver it at the time. So it's slightly different. And when the game starts, you just go. You know, there's no there's no narrative, no script. You've got I've got I spend a lot of time preparing. So for example, I'm doing soccer aid on Sunday and there are hold on, I've got the sheet in front of me. There are at the moment I've got a list of about forty five, nearly fifty players, and I am working through every single one with them. Obviously, I don't really know them very well, some of the celebrities, because I'm about as good at popular culture as I am with stats on uh, baseball. But um, like, you, you ha I have to go in and research about them, find out about what they've been up to. I mean, lots of com I've put to loads of commentators in the past, right? Okay, so people have helped me get to a, a way of working and help me. Ian Dark was brilliant for me. Martin Tyler's been great for me. Um, Jonathan Pierce, very supportive of me. John Motson was great. Um, and, and they sort of tell you little bits and pieces here and there about how to, how to put your notes together. But really, everyone does it their own way. When the game kicks off, that's the start of the exam, right? So it's like if you're doing a GCSE or an A-level, whatever, you know, that's about as far as I got. So I don't know what happens if you go to university. But um, if, if the time starts, when the ball is kicked and that's your examination. Everything you do beforehand is your revision. So I basically revise as much as possible between now and the game kicking off. And then when it comes there, I test, I test myself and see if I can pass the test by passing on the information that I know. I try to find bits of information that you might not have, have picked up on. And by say you, listen, the world we live in now, all the information is out there for some people. But I have to think about my audience. And when I'm on ITV, the audience is so big and so vast that I'm not necessarily talking to you, Charlie, who loves Chelsea and knows everything about Mason Mount, or you, George, who knows everything about Ben Chilwell. I'm talking to my wife's mum, who sits and watches the World Cup or the European Championships because it's on ITV and that's what she does. She's not got a particular great interest in football, but England are playing in a big tournament, so she's excited. So you have to be a little bit broader brush with your strokes and how you paint the pictures and what you talk about. So, um, yeah, a lot of study and you try and find things that are interesting to say. Sometimes they land and people go, wow, that was funny. And sometimes go, he's a bit of a knob, isn't he? But um, who, who really assesses a commentator? Because I suppose, are you quite a critical <laughs> thinker in how, how you look at your performance? Have you been on Twitter? <laughs> 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 um, who assesses a commentator? Well, ultimately, you can't be you can't be led by social media because social media is a very small proportion of your overall audience and everybody. I mean, I watch it happen to I watch it happen the other day to Martin. I watch it happen to 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 it happens to everybody. It just it just is. It's that thing. It's it's what people do, um, and you have to just let that go over and, and turn the page. Who assesses it? Well, I assess it, really, if I'm completely honest. I'm sure that my bosses assess it and they will tell well, they will just stop hiring me if they don't think it's any good. Um, but I assess it every single time. I watch every game back. I listen to every game back. Every game I do on the radio, I'll listen back to. And I will scrutinise myself and I will thump the table and say, why didn't you do more of this? Where was that? Where was this? You should have been talking about this more. Why didn't you talk more about blah and blah that's just what I'm like I am quite self-critical and I work hard I really work hard to try and make it better especially use of language 
Um, at the moment, it, I, I feel as if um, the biggest development in the way we broadcast is the early spotting of tactical changes, you know, and tweaks and patterns and stuff like that. So I'm trying to really score myself better in, in, in those modes, picking things up, joining the community to try and learn more about new coaching philosophies, et cetera, et cetera. And then, yeah, you just, you just, you do everything you can to try and get as much information as possible. And then you, my job is to distill that information and then bring it out when it's relevant. I think sometimes we sort of, we all do it. We, we've, we've got so much information. We try to get it all out that during the course of the 90 minutes, not sure that's always the right thing to do. Sometimes we have to try and hold it, but we're all guilty of it. I'm, I'm guilty of it. But I, commentary is changing a little bit. Um, and I think it will change even more over the course of the next few years in that I think it becomes more chatty. I think it's coming, mm. becoming more chatty. And I think people have sort of learned to sort of like that a little bit. You know, I think sometimes, especially ITV is a little bit more conservative in the fact that we don't go down the three-man booth, for example. There's not three of us at the moment doing the commentary. But I think over time, that will all change. I think, I think we'll probably will get more and more chatty as time goes on. I noticed with the Sky guys, you know, listening to, to, to people that have been around for a very long time, it's certainly more chatty than it was. And I think maybe BT Sport brought that on, but it's all from America, really. You know, mm. uh, yeah, the American influence is huge in, in, in what we do. It takes a bit of time sometimes for it to, to reach these shores, but eventually, uh, you know, the American influence certainly comes across. How important that you get on with a co-commentator or someone else you're commentating with? Is it important to have that chemistry and like if it's there, it comes across better in the broadcast and if it's a little bit off, people sort of pick up on that? Yeah, definitely. I think you do get those those moments where people don't get on or they've had problems or they've fallen out or whatever. But yeah, I think it's important just to try and be yourself and try and try try, try and let the, the warmth of the relationship come out without it sounding too cosy and like you're, you're hanging out with your best friend and nobody else is really in on the joke some people will like what you do some people will not like what you do you know i'm lucky enough to have been working in the industry for 20 you know being paid to work in the industry for 22 years being in the industry for 30 years now so i you know it's been great obviously you've mentioned you know past commentators that you've kind of taken inspiration from or advice from is there any kind of advice from anyone over the years that's kind of stuck with you and that you still take into every game you commentate on today yeah, um, I do. Yeah, Clive Clive taught me something really important about probably 15, 10, 10 years ago, something like that, which was about um, the way I set things up, um, you know, the narrative of the story. So, and he's, he, he wrote me an email basically telling me he'd watched the commentary game that I'd done and just basically went through it and told me how it wasn't very good, really. <laughs> but it was invaluable because by telling me it wasn't very good, he sort of explained why, you know, what he felt about it and the key principles which he thought I should uh, instill. And actually that that has certainly um, stuck with me. But Martin has been very good. Martin sort of you know, very sensible about how to sort of stray the line. John, John Motson, equally very encouraging. And Ian Dark, when I was in Portsmouth, I was probably about 25, 26, and I was doing a lot of commentary support. They were doing quite well at the time. They were in the Premier League. And um, the, Ian Dark came on my show that I had there because he's a Portsmouth fan. 
and a bit like you know maybe a, an early version of this sort of thing where you know we have a group of people that are sitting around a table he would come down we would get him to talk about the show uh talk about Portsmouth and he would uh yeah he would be great but then I'd ask him to listen to one of my tapes and I don't think he really heard that much of me before even though he's a Portsmouth fan because he used to just go to the game but he um he listened to one of my tapes and he said to me look Sam you should be doing national radio now you know you, you've got to you've got to kick on and he said I can give you a pointer here a pointer there and actually those avenues didn't really work out for me but he was very encouraging, very, very encouraging to me. And as a result of that, it, it sort of helped me move forward because it gave me a little bit more belief in myself, really. So he was really good to me. So, yeah. And also, again, what I do and always have done is is I find the people who I think are the best, who, for me, I really enjoy listening to. And I think, God, how do I be like as good as them, as effective as them? What do they do that I don't do? What, what bits can I take from them that are better than what I do? What, you know, those sort of things. And then self-evaluate. Because ultimately, you know, you're never the best. No one is ever the best. There's young people coming through now that probably do it better than me in a certain way. And there's probably, you know, a lot of other people that, that have been doing it for years that have done it better than me in the past and will do it better than me in the future. So ultimately, I want to learn from those people and try and get to that level on a consistent basis. I mean, how important is it that you kind of develop your own style as a commentator? Because there's obviously, there's quite a few commentators about. Um, each one, would I'd say, has kind of got their own style from like your Martin Tyson, Gary Nevels, to the lads at BT Sport, like McManaman, et cetera, former players. Everyone's got their sort of own style. How important is it that you sort of stand out and you develop your own style? And how important is it you don't try and come across like someone else? Is, there, is it hard to find that balance of taking the good bits of people whilst yeah. kind of putting your own spin on it? I don't think you can do that. I don't think you can. Yeah. I don't think it's. I don't think it's possible to, you know, to pretend to be somebody else. Yeah. Because if you if you do what we do on a regular basis, I mean, for me, I'm doing 120 games a year, going to lots of matches. I mean, I couldn't be somebody else. It'd be yeah. very difficult to hold that up, especially for 20 odd years or whatever it is. So, so you have to, and your style develops and changes. And you know, I've got quite an excitable. Um, bent about me so I get very excited when in the big moments I'm not the calmest of person so I I sort of get to a level but I've also as I've got older I've, I've probably got less excitable and I'm a bit more in control of what I do and I think that's a key thing as well you know understanding context of games so I think it's always developing you're always developing and you know you don't everyone has got their own unique style there'll be certain things that I say which maybe people will think oh there that's him again and there'll be other things that people associate with others. But yeah, look, we're all trying to do the same job. We're, we always come off and we're all good mates, really. Yeah. In all honesty, most of us are good mates. So, for example, a lot of people, a lot is made of um, BBC versus ITV in the Euros, you know, and um, Guy Mowbray and I would go up to each other before and after every game, have a massive hug and say, Batten handed over to you, fella. You know what? You know whoever's next, who's taking the next live one? Because we all did, we both did the games, whether yeah. they were live or or highlights. We just, you know, one of them was broadcast and one 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 of them was kept for the archive. So, um, yeah, we all get on quite well. And one of the things we always say, which is without a doubt, even you know Martin and I were doing England in the Nations League last time and in the qualifiers, and uh, we would come off and he'd uh, and I'd say everything would go all right, and he'd go, well, got got the goal score all right. 
<laughs> and, and ultimately, that's all anyone really cares about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, obviously, we know sport, like football, is very emotive. Like, when you're commentating on moments of real importance within games or within context of a season or winning trophies, etc., is it quite hard to keep your emotions in check as a commentator? Or sometimes, you know... You can just let it out. You know, there's iconic moments from Peter Jury, you know, Gary Neville, Torres in Barcelona, um, and Paul Merson, of course, with the, the Aguero, etc., and Martin Tyler as well. I mean, is it hard to keep your emotions in check sometimes? Well, if you ever hit to hear what happened in those two moments that you just mentioned when I was behind the mic. So in 2012, when Aguero scored his goal, I was sitting next to Stan, Stan Collymore on TalkSport. And um, let's just say... No emotions were checked. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember walking into the building the next day and Richard Keyes coming over to me and saying to me, what did you think of your goal commentary yesterday? And I said, I thought it was shit. And he said, uh, correct, don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and he was right, by the way. He was absolutely right. Um, I did, and I did the Torres thing actually very soon afterwards. I think it might have been, or might have been before, I can't remember. With Torres, I was there, and it was again one of those big moments because it was Chelsea going through to a final. And yeah, you know, I, but I think since that Aguero moment where I did lose control a little bit, I've never lost control again. I get quite emotional about the whole thing, um, and especially during the Euros this time. I had to mentally sort of rehearse what would happen in certain circumstances before I'd sit in the hotel room before the games and go through what I thought might happen. And this happens, what this goal was. Because actually, England scoring a winning goal against Germany, when I start thinking about it, I get a little bit emotional about it. So especially when I think of some of the things I'd like to say when that happened, and I mean, all right, okay, calm that down, go through it, say it now. And then when you get there, you'll, you'll know what, what, what it, what's about. So, yeah. Yeah, you do have to be a little bit careful and you can't get, I don't, I don't, would you, would you want me to be detached from it? Would you want me not to care? Would you want me I, not to, I, to be a part of it? I don't know, but I mean, no, I, I think, I feel like you, like I'd want someone to, to yeah. be at least sounding like they're enjoying the moment. I think as a, as a consumer or as a viewer, you want, you know, a reaction in the moment to it. So if it's a big moment, you want someone to give their, you know, their proper reaction, their instant reaction, rather than kind of holding themselves in. Obviously, you know, you've got to be within reason. You've got to kind of not completely go mad, et cetera. But you want, you want yeah. some sort of emotion to be shown. You don't want it to be come across like static or robotic or anything like that. Because at the end of the day, people remember these big moments just as much as the moment itself, they remember the commentary from it as well. I mean, that yeah. Aguero line is a, is, is a classic, you know, people will never forget that. It wasn't just the moment, it was the, the commentary that goes with it. So I think it is important that commentators, you know, give, you know, what they're feeling at the time, but obviously kind of slightly within reason as well. I mean, so just to round out, you've commentated on a lot of games, you've got the World Cup coming up as well. Um, you got any standout moments that you've commentated on that you thought, oh, do you know what, that, that, that was special. I'm so glad that I got to kind of take that in. I'll never have, again, the night I had at Euro 2021 or 2020, whatever it was called. I can't remember because it was in a different year. Yeah. Um, but the England-Denmark game. The England-Denmark game was the most watched match on a single TV channel in British history. Um, so we had over 28 million people watching on linear TV live. So I think probably with the online audience as well, we had about 30 million people watching. It's the biggest ever. 
And I don't know if that will ever happen again. I hope it does, because if it does happen again, it will mean that England have done very well again. But it won't happen probably for a long time. Or if it happens, it will happen in this summer's World Cup. Um, but, I, yeah, it, I don't think I'll ever get to be... I, it was special, this, this, this European Championships, because most of the time there was nobody there. You've got to remember, the first few games... It was limited capacity, you know, up until the Czech Republic game. We only had like a, a third of the, the crowd. And even for the, the later games, it was 67. It was only when we got to the semifinals and the final that we had full capacity, you know. So you're, you're, you're talking about it's a different time. And I was watching some of it back, actually, because we were just making a little um, a reel the other day. I was watching some of it back and I said to the person making it, I said, it doesn't really sound like me doing that. It sounds a bit like I've, it sounds a bit extra. And they said to me, we, we, you've got to remember at the time, it was different. It was, it was a different time. We, everyone had been locked down for a year, pretty much. There'd been restrictions on place on everybody for a long time. So everybody being in a football stadium, enjoying a nation, like coercing moment, was was an expression of a, of relief, emotion, and passion that we hadn't seen for a long time. Going back, I did the FA Cup final that year, and looking back from my notes, I think there was only eight thousand people at the FA Cup final that year. I think that's right. Something like that. It was, yeah, you know, it, it, it was the same. There was only about a month before. So yeah, I think that period, that reopening of of Wembley and it coming with. The, the Denmark game. I don't think I'll ever have anything like that again. Although I did say after the Scotland game, oh, this is the biggest game I'll ever commentate on. And my <laughs> boss turned around and said to me after the Denmark game, do the final on Sunday. So I doubt it was the biggest game you'd ever commentate on. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's a fair point. I mean, I mean, it sounds like a good point to round out, Sam. I mean, very generous of your time. I do really appreciate it uh, as very much. Um, where can people find out more about you? Obviously, you know, you're on ITV, TalkSport, etc. Um, social media, good place to get you as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm on Insta, uh, at Sam Matterface. The one benefit of having the worst name in human history is, is that nobody else has got your Twitter handle. So uh, <laughs> it's just my name. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm doing TalkSport for the summer. I'm doing the European Championships for the Lionesses, which is great. I get to do that every couple of years, which is good. And um, I am, I've got soccer aid this weekend. So, yeah. And then after, between that time, I'm having a bit of a break and going off to the, um, to the States for a little while, just for, just for a bit of rest and recuperation before it all starts again. But, yeah, looking forward to another big season. It's been a, a, a very interesting campaign. So, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely, guys. I've linked Sam's socials in the description below, so make sure you go out there and give him a follow. I'm obviously on TalkSport itv so make sure you know you give him some support of his commentary and all that sort of stuff and uh yeah sam thank you so much for your time really appreciate it uh very generous of you to give up your time thank you so much george thanks as always you can hear this mate just be you can mate you can mark i feel, our, so, you can... I feel so sorry for george poor old george has been sitting he, there for ages he, and he's just well, been maybe, up. maybe you can mark our conversation that we had <laughs> he, he can watch it back and give us some feedback yeah <laughs> yeah no sam thank you so much really appreciate your time guys make sure you subscribe to the youtube channel and leave some good reviews on the podcast but until then we'll be back later on in the week take care and enjoy the rest of the week cheers guys <laughs>